take our Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 5. As we continue our study through the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher who ever lived, our Lord Jesus. Matthew chapter 5, and we'll read all of the Beatitudes. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you, and persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Americans have long been concerned, perhaps even obsessed, with cleanliness. Our mothers taught us that cleanliness is next to godliness, yes. And most of us took that to heart. So your typical American will shower at least once a day, wash their hands frequently, and I for one am, am glad that we do. I've traveled to many different cultures around the world, and I've lived in another culture of the world for three years, and I have discovered that there are different standards of cleanliness in some of those cultures, and they actually view our American obsession with washing and cleansing as bizarre. And I'm afraid that now at least they might be right. At the beginning of the COVID pandemic, folks just plain panicked when there was a shortage of antiseptic wipes and hand sanitizers on the shelves of our grocery stores and Walmarts. Although we have done just fine with soap and water for the last few thousand years, we thought we simply could not leave without those more robust cleansers that promise to wipe out 99.9% of bacteria on any surface you might find them. And as soon as the hand sanitizer and the antiseptic wipes appeared back on the shelves, it was like the gold rush. I mean, people leapt in their cars and raced to the local market and uh, it was dangerous to walk the aisles of the stores in those days as people wheeled their carts down to load them up and some still haven't fully reduced the stockpile uh, that they accumulated in that mad rush. 
So we continue to use the products liberally and we are committed to cleanliness more than ever before. And I'm a little bit afraid that one of the lasting changes of the pandemic on our culture may be a rampant and abiding germophobia that makes us obsessed with preserving a clean and sterile environment. And all that would be fine and good if it weren't for the grave inconsistencies between that obsession with cleanliness and some other things that we're perfectly content to overlook. Although we care very much about the cleanliness of our hands and everything that we come in contact with, the moral standards of our culture continue to plummet. They sink lower and lower and lower. The wickedness of human hearts only grows darker and darker, and few seem to care about that spiritual and moral filth at all. Everyone is concerned about whether their hands are clean, but very few are concerned about whether their hearts are pure. And in the process, we've become very much like the hypocritical Pharisees that the Lord Jesus chastised, who were very concerned about the cleanliness of the outside of the cup, but leave the inside filthy. Far more concerned about external purity than we are about internal purity. I think that we are susceptible to Christ's indictment of the Pharisees when he said, you are like whitewashed tombs. On the outside, you appear to men to be beautiful, but on the inside, you are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. And then he added, in the same way, on the outside, you appear to men to be righteous, but on the inside, you are full of wickedness and hypocrisy. Yes, I am afraid that Christ's indictment of the Pharisees may sound an awful lot like us. Why is it that we are so obsessed with the purity of the outside and neglect the purity of the inside? Well, I think it may be in part that we've kind of given up. Uh, we've tried to change and failed and tried to change and failed and we've tried to change and failed so many times we've really given up any hope of ever being any different from what we are right now. We don't know how to purify our hearts. We feel powerless in the face of that challenge. After all, there is no soap for the soul. There is no sanitizer for the spirit. There is no bleach for a wicked heart. We simply cannot make ourselves pure. The Apostle Peter pointed this out well in his second epistle. His comments are a bit disturbing. I think he intends for them to disgust us so that we will become a bit disgusted with ourselves. He says we are like pigs that are washed only to return to the wallow, that we are like dogs that return to their vomit. And the point that he is making is that we abandon our filth for just a little while and then we race right back into it and end up 
dirtier than ever before. But while there is nothing we can do to cleanse our own hearts, the good news of the gospel and particularly of the Beatitudes that will be our focus today is that Jesus Christ can cleanse our heart. He can purify our heart. He can cleanse our souls. He can transform our very character. The Lord Jesus describes his disciples in verse 8 with these words, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. This is the Lord Jesus' promise to purify the dirty, the sinful, the wicked from the inside out and then give them the promise of unhindered fellowship with God. Now, when the Lord Jesus blesses the pure in heart, that language should stir our reminiscences of the Old Testament because Psalm 24, 4 said that it's the person with clean hands and a pure heart who is able to ascend the mountain and worship the holy God in his temple. Clean hands are hands that refrain from doing evil. And a pure heart is a heart that desires to please God more than to enjoy the pleasures of sin. Purity of heart refers to the purity of the inner person. A pure heart refers to a sincere, authentic righteousness that's different from the hypocritical righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees who made a good show of righteousness but lacked true internal purity. Now, let me be clear about this before we move on. Purity in heart is not a requirement for salvation, but it is a necessary result of salvation. What I mean by that is we don't have to purify our own hearts to make ourselves acceptable to the Lord Jesus. He accepts us even in our filth and defilement, but he inevitably, without fail, transforms the sinner and makes them a saint. We saw in our last study that Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And that every true follower of Jesus Christ will be characterized by this intense craving to have a righteous character and to live a holy life. But we also saw that that promise that they will be satisfied with full and complete righteousness is an eschatological promise. It's one that will not be completely fulfilled until resurrection and glorification. And yet... This beatitude that we're looking at this morning assures us that although this process of transformation won't be finalized and completed until resurrection and glorification, that process is well on its way here and now. Because Jesus can describe his disciples even in this present life as the pure in heart, showing that dramatic and radical transformation has already occurred. 
Now, when we first look at Jesus' description of his disciples of the pure in heart, we're baffled. Because we've been around long enough to know that that is not the natural state of fallen humanity. Look at the biblical descriptions of the lost sinner's heart. First reference to the heart as the center of man's being in the Old Testament is Genesis 6-5, which said, The Lord saw that man's wickedness was widespread on the earth and that every scheme his mind, in Hebrew it's literally his heart, thought of was nothing but evil all the time. Genesis 8.21 continues, man's inclination, and again the Hebrew literally says, the purpose of his heart is evil from his youth. The prophet Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 17.9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? The point that he's making is the lost sinner's heart is so corrupt and so desperately wicked that he can't even fathom and understand the depths of his own depravity. Proverbs 20 verse 9 describes man's inability to cleanse his own heart by saying, Who can say, I have kept my heart pure, I am cleansed from my sin? And the implied response is, no one can make this claim because no one has kept their heart pure and clean. The first reference we find to a pure heart, I believe, is in Psalm 51. It's the psalm in which King David expressed his repentance after his sin of, of adultery and murder. And his prayer was simply this, create in me a pure heart and renew a right spirit within me. It's interesting that he uses there that powerful Hebrew verb we translate create. Uh, the Hebrew verb literally means to make something out of nothing. Same verb used in Genesis 1 to describe God's ex nihilo creation of the universe where he spoke everything into existence out of nothing. And when David uses that powerful verb, he is acknowledging, if I'm going to have a clean heart, it's got to be created out of nothing because there is nothing good in me already for you to work with. I don't have even the ingredients for a pure heart. You must speak them into existence. And the Lord Jesus continues this theme of the corruption of the human heart in his own teaching, particularly in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew 5, 28, the Lord Jesus will teach that lust arises out of an impure heart. In Matthew 12, 34, he will teach that evil words exude from an evil heart. In Matthew 15, 8, he will say that the Israelites honor God with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. And perhaps most importantly, in Matthew 15, 19 through 20, he says, For from the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, sexual immoralities, thefts, 
false testimonies, blasphemies. These are the things that defile a man. What Christ is saying is every evil deed we perform has issued from a wicked heart. Matthew 19, 8, the Lord Jesus described the sinner's heart as hard. And that's the source of all marital problems is the hardness of the human heart. So here's my point. When the Lord Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, he is not naively assuming uh, that all of us are naturally and on our own characterized by purity of heart. When he describes his disciples as the pure in heart, he's well aware of the wickedness of fallen humanity, the sinfulness and depravity of fallen humanity. He can only describe his disciples as the pure in heart because he has transformed them by his power. He has come, the creator incarnate, to perform the miracle of new creation and answer David's prayer and create in God's people a clean and pure heart. Now, God commanded us to have pure hearts even back in the books of Moses. Deuteronomy 10, 16, God said to Israel, circumcise your hearts and do not be stiff-necked. A circumcised heart is contrasted with the stiff neck. Stiff neck is a picture of a beast of burden that doesn't want to yield to the control of the master. And when the master tugs the rein to the left or tugs the rein to the right, the animal locks up the muscles in its neck and refuses to yield to the rein. That is, it rebels against the master's will and insists on going its own way. That's natural fallen humanity, isn't it? God says, thou shalt not, and we say, oh, yes, I will. But the commandment was circumcise your hearts and do not be stiff-necked. The circumcised heart is the very opposite of the stiff neck. If the stiff neck represents stubborn, obstinate rebellion against the will and control of the master, then what does the circumcised heart represent? eager and joyful submission to the will of the master, a, a hunger and thirst for righteousness, a longing to obey God's commands. But you see the problem in Deuteronomy 10, 16, don't you? The command was you circumcise your hearts. This was a test of the nation of Israel intended for them to try and to fail and to fail so miserably that they gave up all hope of ever circumcising their own hearts and having the kind of heart that joyfully submitted to God's will. And so Deuteronomy 30 verse 6 followed up with a blessed promise, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart. God will do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. He will transform and purify our hearts. And that, of course, is what the new covenant promises of the prophets are all about. 
Remember, Jeremiah said that in the new covenant era, God is going to write his law on our hearts so that we are compelled from within to obey God's law. Prophet Ezekiel in his new covenant promise says that God would give us a new heart. He would take away the heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. And then God would place his own spirit within that heart. He says, I will place my spirit within you and he will move you, cause you to keep my commandments and fulfill my ordinances. Here's my point. When the Lord Jesus blesses his disciples as the pure in heart, what he's saying is the new covenant era has arrived. God is going to give you a new heart. He's going to fill that new heart with the Holy Spirit. You are going to be granted a righteous and holy character so that you become capable of a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. What kind of life does purity in heart produce? Well, the, the opposite of all the lifestyles that we read about in Matthew 15, he said, from our evil corrupt heart come evil thoughts. So from a pure heart come pure thoughts. From an evil heart comes murders, but from a pure heart will become respect for the sanctity of life. From an evil heart comes adultery, but from a pure heart giving everything to preserve the sanctity of our marriages. From an evil heart comes sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, blasphemy. But from a pure heart will be sexual purity, respecting property, telling the truth, and honoring with deep reverence the name of our holy God. This is the kind of character that belongs to the Christian disciple because of the pure heart granted through Jesus' transforming work. And Lord Jesus promises the pure in heart, they shall see God. Now that first promise of purity in heart is a powerful one. Because God's true people have always longed to, to be more holy and more righteous, more sanctified. That's why Augustus Toplady wrote that famous line in the old hymn, Rock of Ages Cleft for Me, and said, Be of sin the double cure, save from wrath, and make me pure. It's not enough for the true disciple of the Lord Jesus to, to just be forgiven, to escape the wrath of God. We want to be holy and righteous and godly and honor God through pure living. But the Lord Jesus promises beyond that purity in heart, that the pure in heart, his true disciples who have been transformed by his power will see God. They will behold God in all of his majesty and in all of his glory. 
Unfortunately, because we miss the fact that these are eschatological futures in most of the Beatitudes, we, we try to contemporize this and say, well, we, we must see God as his disciples in this way here and now. And so some have interpreted this promise merely figuratively or mystically. Uh, the idea being we see God only in the sense that we have special theological insight into God's person or we see God through some visionary experience and that kind of thing. But no, uh, this is an eschatological promise in which the Lord Jesus is assuring his disciples whose hearts have been transformed that they will literally see God face to face in all of his glory. And this is what the Old Testament saints longed for so deeply. Do you remember the prayer of Moses in Exodus 33? He says, Lord, let me see your glory. But Yahweh replies, no man can see my face and live. Why? Because if we in our sinfulness were to gaze upon God and all of his intense glory, we would be incinerated by the gaze. We would be immediately destroyed by the intensity of the divine radiance. And so you remember what happened in Exodus 33. God places Moses in the cleft of the rock, he places his hand over it, his glory passes by, and he allows Moses to see only the after effects of the divine glory. And that's essentially all that we see in this life. The outer fringes of God's great glory and intense radiance. That's why the Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy 3.16 that God dwells in unapproachable light that no man has seen nor can see. But what Jesus tells us now is that the day is coming when we will no longer suffer that limitation. Every trace of our sinfulness will have been removed in resurrection and glorification. And we can gaze upon God face to face, not as some distant stranger, but knowing him intimately and personally. I began the discussion of this beatitude by pointing to Psalm 24, where the psalmist said that the one who can ascend the mountain of the Lord and stand in the holy place is he who has clean hands and a pure heart. And that phrase, pure heart, informs the first part of this beatitude. But it's sometimes overlooked that the last promise of the beatitude comes from Psalm 24 too. Because that psalm climaxes with this promise, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. And what the psalmist is saying is it's the most intense longing of the true people of God to behold the face of God, to see God no longer as a distant stranger, but as the closest father and dearest friend. 
And that promise will be fulfilled in resurrection and glorification. The old hymn writer understood this, Psalm 24, and that's why she wrote, Pure in heart, O God, help me to be until thy holy face one day I see. Keep me from secret sin, reign thou my soul within, purer in heart, help me to be. The Lord Jesus won't just help us be pure in heart. He will make us pure in heart by his radical transforming power. As he transforms us from the inside out, imparts his spirit to us in the miracle of new creation and in fulfillment of the new covenant. So that at last, the promise of Revelation 22.4 will be fulfilled. I was there. The apostle John describes the resurrected, glorified saints in the holy city. God's glory shines so bright that there's no need for another light or lamp. But the most powerful promise of all is verse 4, which says, and they will see his face. They will see his face. That's the promise that awaits us because of God's gracious and transforming work. But then the Lord Jesus goes on to promise, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Peace, of course, is, is basically the absence of strife. Peacemakers are reconcilers. They are people who take two alienated parties and bring them together, who take two enemies and make them friends who transform enmity into unity and harmony. Probably our most important parallel passage for understanding the Lord Jesus' reference to peacemaking here is James 3, verse 13 through 4, 1. The epistle of James is heavily dependent on the Sermon on the Mount. The half-brother of the Lord who wrote the epistle of James was present, I'm sure, when the Lord Jesus preached this great sermon. And James wrote, who is wise and understanding among you? He should show his works by good conduct with wisdom's gentleness. But if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your heart, don't brag and lie in defiance of the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from above, but is earthly, sensual, and demonic. For where envy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every kind of evil. But the wisdom that God grants from above is first pure, then peace-loving, gentle, compliant, full of mercy and good fruits, without favoritism and hypocrisy. And get this, the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So what is the source of the wars and fights among you? 
James is writing to a congregation that's characterized by disunity. Brother is turned against brother. Sister is turned against sister. And James is saying, this is of the evil one. It's not from the holy one. This is demonic. It's not divine. He says, the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Consequently, when the Lord Jesus blesses the peacemakers, it is clear that he's talking about those who try to reconcile those who are at odds with each other, especially others who are at odds with us, ourselves. This is a really important theme of Jesus' teaching in the Gospel of Matthew. In Matthew 5, 21 through 26, he'll say that his disciples are to interrupt even the solemn act of atoning sacrifice in the temple. If they remember that they've sinned somehow against their brother or sister and have not made it right. That solemn act of sacrifice was so holy, it was not to be interrupted. But what Christ is saying there is getting things right with your brother and sister is very urgent and must be sought without delay. Same passage, he'll say that his disciples need to be people who settle uh, court cases in a fast out-of-court settlement. When, when you've wronged your brother or sister, you don't fight it out to the bitter end, hoping to make as little recompense as possible. You make it right as soon as possible. Matthew 5, 38 to 41, he commands his disciples not to retaliate against those who slap them and insult them. Under no circumstances are Jesus' disciples to seek revenge. He says they're even to diffuse the hostility of their Roman oppressors by being willing to carry their pack an extra mile. And at the climax of chapter 5 of the Sermon on the Mount, he is going to command us not just to love our neighbors and friends, but to love even our enemies. And to pray for, not against, pray for those who persecute us. In other words, the ministry of peacemaking, of patching things up with people that we have wronged in some way, is a thread that is woven through the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount. Why? Does Christ single out the peacemakers for special blessing? Well, he singles them out for a reason that's implied by the promise, for they will be called the sons of God. Now, we have talked briefly before about how many of the promises in the Beatitudes take a grammatical form referred to as a divine passive. It's a reverent way of referring to the activity of God, and this is another example of that. When Christ says, you will be called the sons of God, he doesn't mean by other people. He means God is going to call us his sons and daughters in final judgment. He's referring to that moment that we'll read about in Matthew chapter 7. 
where people appear at the gate of the kingdom saying, Lord, Lord, and seeking entrance. He's talking about that moment that he'll refer to in what's sometimes called the parable of the sheep and the goats, where people are judged and assigned to their final eternal destiny. What Christ is saying is, my true disciples will be characterized by the ministry of peacemaking and will be recognized as my sons and daughters on judgment day. What's going on here? Well, first of all, let me hasten to say that being a peacemaker isn't a requirement to get saved any more than being pure in heart is a requirement to get saved. But remember, although these are not requirements for salvation, they are necessary results of salvation. Jesus is recognizing that his true disciples will be committed to the ministry of peacemaking, to seeking reconciliation with those that they have sinned against and wrongly offended. And why is it that they will be recognized as sons and daughters of God in final judgment? Well, it's because one of the key principles of the Sermon on the Mount is what we might call the law of spiritual genetics. The laws of genetics say that since children carry the genetic makeup of their parents, they will resemble their parents in remarkable ways. Uh, we express that with the old adage, like father, like son. And what the Lord Jesus is saying is, if you're committed to the ministry of peacemaking and reconciling people who are in disunity, you'll be recognized as the sons and daughters of God by your resemblance to your heavenly father. Else our heavenly father is committed to the work of reconciliation and peacemaking, isn't he? Galatians, Paul will say that we were enemies of God in our minds through our wicked works. We declared war against the Almighty God in our rebellion against His commands. And yet in grace and mercy, He reconciled us to Himself so that we who were His enemies became His children and His friends. And what the Lord Jesus is saying is, if your heavenly Father loves people so much that He seeks reconciliation with those who sinned against Him, how much more should you seek reconciliation with others, especially when the rift is caused by your sin against them? The Lord Jesus told Nicodemus what it meant to be born again. He said, that which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. Now, what he was saying is, children born of fleshly parents have a fleshly nature. They are prone to sin and rebellion. But when he says, that which is born of spirit is spirit, he's saying those who are given spiritual birth by the Holy Spirit of God partake of his nature and character too. And what is the character of the Holy Spirit? Well, we kind of already answered the question in the very name, didn't we? He is the Holy Spirit. And so he imparts holiness 
to those to whom he grants spiritual birth. That's why John says in 1 John 3, 9, everyone who has been born of God does not continue in a sinful lifestyle because God's seed remains in him. He's intentionally using a genetics illustration here. God's seed remains in him. He is not able to keep on sinning because he has been born of God. And this is how God's children and the devil's children become obvious, John says. Everyone who does not do what is right is not of God, especially the one who does not love his brother or sister. So the Lord Jesus is not saying it's because we're peacemakers that we are adopted as sons and daughters of God. But no, what, what he's saying is you are given spiritual birth by the Holy God at conversion, God imparts his holy character to you. And part of God's character is to seek reconciliation. Part of God's character is to make peace. And if you're truly his son and daughter, you will have that same drive and impulse. with right now and we all know that it's rarely uh, a single person's fault normally there's mutual responsibility but the question is have, have you apologized and have you sought in some cases to make restitution for the wrong that you did You have a Christian obligation as sons and daughters of God who have the impulse of reconciliation and peacemaking to get in touch with those who have a broken relationship with you and to try to make things right and seek unity. And you're not responsible for their response to your initiative, but you are responsible to take the initiative and try to make things right and restore unity with your brothers and your sisters. And when you do this, you are exhibiting the character of your heavenly father. You are walking in your spiritual daddy's footsteps, so to speak, like any respectful little boy wants to do. You are showing that you are his. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? First question, has your heart been changed? Do you have a longing for holiness? Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? And are you seeing evidence of God's transforming work as the Heavenly Father imparts His own character to His sons and daughters? The miracle of new creation and the promise of the new covenant assure us that God's true people will not only be forgiven, they will be changed. 
And if you've not experienced a change, then it is time to truly repent of sin and bow the knee to Jesus as God's Savior and King today. Confess to Him that you are a sinner who is hopeless and helpless apart from His sacrificial death on the cross. Confess your faith that He died on the cross for your sins in your place, was punished for you so that you could be forgiven. And then ask Him to not only spare you from the wrath of the heavenly judge, but to change your life from the inside out, to give you this transformed heart that Moses and the prophets and the Lord Jesus and the apostles all insisted will belong to the true children of God. And if you make that commitment today, then celebrate the promise that is given to you. You will see God. And when you see him, he won't be scowling. He'll be smiling. He'll have words of commendation, well done, good and faithful servant. And he will embrace you as his child. Now, many of you had your hearts changed a long, long time ago, but if truth be told, uh, of late the heart has become embittered, angry, unforgiving, and unkind. And there are people that you have done things to, and there are people that you have said things to that were wrong, and you were too prideful to try to go to them and make it right. And my prayer is that God will crush that pride today and you will seek reconciliation with your brothers and your sisters because it's in that pursuit of reconciliation and peace that you demonstrate you're a true son and daughter of God. Father, we commit this invitation to you. These moments aren't perfunctory. They're not just a matter of tradition for us. We recognize everyone in this room is making a decision right now about whether to obey what your word says or reject what your word says. I pray that you would move them and compel them to obedience surrender I pray that everyone in the sound of my voice will be forgiven and transformed and will have the joy in eternity of seeing you face to face and being called your son and daughter and Lord if anyone has repented of sin and believed in the Lord Jesus as God Savior and King today for the very first time, I pray that you will give them the boldness to come forward and tell one of us about their commitment so we can celebrate it with them and explain to them what the next steps are in their Christian life. Lord, do a work now that can only be explained by your grace and power. In Jesus' name, amen.